all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Every time you think you're out, I pull you back in. Welcome, you beautiful mother punchers, you bastards of reality. For we are all unclaimed children scampering about the ankles of our musical progenitor, the spiral architect himself, his wicked high holiness and lord of this world, having seven heads and ten horns but only eight fingertips, Tony fucking Iomi. This is, and volume for all, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I bet you're not wondering why I opened with a quote from Godfather Part 3. Well, don't wonder no longer. This is Episode 3, Part 3 of our trilogy on the topic of metal subgenres, subgenregation. The final film in the Godfather saga is a classic example of a long-standing tradition in Hollywood of deeply disappointing third installments, and I hope to uphold that legacy here today. Thank you to everyone who's reached out to show support for this podcast on Twitter and beyond, and thank you to the people who reached out to tell me exactly how wrong I am about the Black Album. Please never stop. At AV4APod. I love metal. And I love metalheads, and I love talking about music. We are not all going to agree about every album. We might not agree about any album, but that's why this is fun, right? And it's good for metal. I think the best compliment that anyone can give is, I learned something from you. That is certainly true on my end, and I hope that over the course of this children's beauty pageant for evil people I call a podcast, you feel that you've learned something from And Volume For All, even if that thing is how not to do a metal podcast. I'll take it. I ain't choosy. I want to get to our subgenres for this episode because I have a special guest calling in later and I want to cover some ground before he does. So, the year is 1992. Bill Clinton is president. Glam is dead. And Bill Cosby's dream of a mentorship program for young actresses is still very much alive. You zip up your jinkos, slap on a neon green bracelet to match your hyper-color tee, until someone puts their hand on it, that is, and hop into your Geo Metro on the way to your shift at a blockbuster. You reach for the dial, and for the 400,000th time that week, you hear this. doesn't say postmodern pep rally. So you unzip your case logic and pop in the CD soundtrack to the movie Singles and skip ahead to song number 12. I nearly, I nearly lost my mind. 
getting closer, but not quite. You're feeling somber, but not flannel somber. It's more SoCal somber. So you decide to drive through one of those Starbucks coffee roasters you've been hearing so much about, flipping through the pages of plastic until you reach the R's, looking for this. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. But you can't find it because your little sister ganked your discman for her weekly pilgrimage to Gadzooks at the mall. Well, you're not feeling somber anymore. Now you're pissed off, and doubly so because you know you won't be able to rage tweet about it for at least 14 years. As your pugilism propels you through the pages of plastic in pursuit of some percussive polyrhythmic pounding you'd prefer to the pusillanimous poetry of posers like Pearl Jam, you place your p finger on the peas. And there you find it. An island of aggression alone in an ocean of ironic ennui. Alt-rock no longer suits your mood. You're not sad. You're angry. In fact, you're fucking hostile. One, two, three, four! Almost every day, I see the same face. I'm fucking pissed at you. It's been the attitude. If you can see yourself, what you want to show? You're from a massive base. Problems to nauseate. Today I'm playing the part of the parrot. Now make a hundred rules for you to know I'm not just Yes, that is fucking hostile off of Pantera's second album, Vulgar Displayed a Minute. This says it's not their second album, it's their sixth album? Holy shit. There's a, there's a whole back catalog of Pantera that starts in 1983. That's Kill 'em All territory. Oh my god. If they were this angry in the 90s, imagine how brutal their shit must have been in 83. No. No, this can't be the same Pantera. The lead singer isn't Phil Anselmo, it's Terry Glows. You know, I think this webpage I'm looking at might have been stolen. It claims the guitars belong to someone called Diamond Daryl. I wonder if they mean old Dimebag Daryl. Do you know what they're talking about? Sorry, I shouldn't have asked you with your mouth full of space soup and blue milk. Wait, Vinnie Paul is on drums. It is Pantera! Holy shit, I gotta hear these albums. Okay, let's do this. First song, first album is Ride My Rocket off of Metal Magic. Okay, that's obviously a misprint. Pantera! I mean, I, I think, uh, is, 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 if, okay, 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 uh, it, 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 where, 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 are, are, the, are, are, 
あー What the fuck was that? So it turns out Pantera was a glam metal band for their first four albums, and a lot of the songs on Metal Magic were written by a guy named Jerry Abbott, who was an old country music producer, which makes sense because a lot of this stuff is kind of dirty. <laughs> I mean, the lyrics to Ride My Rocket Alone, I don't want to touch you since we're both 16. Ride my rocket, wear me out. You might be the best that I've ever had. It's got to be good, girl, because it looks so bad. <laughs> it sure does.、Uh, and it's a little odd that an old guy is writing songs with teenagers, but I don't know. It could be worse, I guess. Oh, Jerry Abbott is Vinnie Paul and Dimebag Daryl's dad. Well, thank God I was afraid it was going to be something weird. You know, now that I think about it, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to go back to when I thought that there were only five albums. Cowboys from Hell, the 1990 debut from Pantera, was a harbinger of the brutality that would come from the band in the last decade of the 20th century with vulgar display of power, far beyond driven, the great Southern trend kill, and reinventing the steel in the year 2000. That five album stretch was a lifeline for so many metalheads in a decade otherwise dominated by grunge and alt rock records like. Automatic for the People by REM. What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis. Last Splash by the Breeders. And of course, Radiohead. Just pick any album, it doesn't matter which one. They were all huge. Pantera are also the band most widely considered to be responsible for our first subgenre of the episode Groove Metal. Now, I'm going to cover a couple bands in the groove subgenre because I think as a category, it mirrors the fractured nature of the metal psyche in the 90s with a lot of bands that don't necessarily sound similar, but we'll get to that in a minute. Groove is heavily inspired by thrash with down tune, riff centric songs, syncopated rhythms, and growled or screamed vocals. I'm going to do an entire episode on metal vocals at some point soon, but right now, just want to make clear that the groove growl. Is not like the death growl. In fact, the growly quality、uh, that a lot of groove has is just what normal humans might describe as a throaty baritone, which, by sheer coincidence, is the name of my favorite vaudeville comedian. Who is that joke supposed to be for, Quinn? Who is that for? On Cowboys, you can actually hear Phil Anselmo doing some of the falsetto vocals that were a prerequisite for frontmen in the 80s. It always stands out to me as this. Vestigial appendage in the context of this new sound that they're inventing, like the new album just popping in to remind you that it existed at one point. Hey there, mates. Is this song about a motorcycle? No? Alright, see you later. By vulgar display of power, Pantera had shed their glam and power metal roots, though it is the last record on which the artist currently known as Dimebag was credited as Diamond Daryl. The name was changed so as to avoid confusion with a guy who sold me fake mushrooms one time in a Reno parking lot, and later returned to apologize before stealing three of my hubcaps. There was nothing wrong with that fourth one, Daryl. You're just a snob. And while Vulgar Display of Power would eventually become Pantera's best selling album, in 1994, their seventh, fourth studio LP, Far Beyond Driven, would make Pantera into the biggest metal act of the decade. Metallica having recoiled into hard rock in 1991 as the first stage in their eventual transition to the musical equivalent of a 65 year old who still wears his high school letterman's jacket out to bars. In fact, in an interview with Rolling Stone, bassist Rex Brown said, The record company was pushing for something like the Black Album. We were like, No, that's not gonna happen. 
The comments led to an unexpected turn of events in my life when, as a 42-year-old man, I found myself idolizing a guy named Rex. But as a reminder that record companies know exactly dick about music, the only change Pantera needed to make to their sound to achieve commercial success was to make more of it. Far Beyond Driven was released on March 22nd and went straight to number one on the Billboard 200, going gold in just under two months and certified platinum three years later in 1997. The first single, I'm Broken, was written around the time that Phil Anselmo found out that he had two blown discs in his back and had to take painkillers to perform. But I doubt that will have any unintended consequences for him or Pantera later on down the road. Wouldn't worry about it. That song went to 19 on the UK singles charts, and their second single went to 26 in the UK. But that one wasn't an original. It was a cover of a song that we listened to on the first episode of this podcast, the third song off of the second album, Paranoid, by who else but Black Sabbath. There's a special kind of poetry to Pantera achieving mainstream commercial success without compromising their artistic integrity in a decade, which saw so many metal acts making alternative records. Like when Megadeth released Cryptic Writings in 1996, appearing destined to follow Metallica's leap into mainstream pop snoozers. Oh, sorry, I forgot to quote that one. That's not me. That's Dean Galemis from the Chicago Tribune in 1997, just so you know where to send your angry rebuttals. Here's Pantera. In 1994, a decade known as something of a dark age for metal, and the new standard bearers score a number one album that contains a cover of the band that invented the genre, releasing it as their single. Dark Age My Butthole. By the way, Dark Age My Butthole is a really underrated Celtic Frost album. For my money, on Far Beyond Driven, Pantera refined the sound that they discovered on Cowboys from Hell and expanded on vulgar display of power into a magnum opus of groove metal with which they burst through the walls of a popular conscious like the Kool-Aid man filled to the brim with crown royal and cigarette butts. Far Beyond Driven is Pantera at the peak of their powers. Unscathed, unscarred, hard as a rock, shut like a lock, and stronger than all.
One of the signature sounds of Pantera and the subgenre they pioneered is something called syncopated rhythms. I watched a video series Dimebag Daryl did for Guitar World in which he described his technique like this. I'm kind of a percussionist when it comes to picking because a lot of my rhythm patterns are almost like drum patterns. Take the front of a new level. Please. <laughs> okay, sorry, that was me. That was not that was not Dimebag. Who continued? I actually came up with the idea for this riff by beating on those little crystal glasses with some chopsticks at Benny Hanna's, where dinner is the show. <laughs> That's me again. Mr. Bag continues. All syncopation means is accenting beats that you don't normally accent. The notes that you'd normally accent would fall on counts of one, two, three, and four. To make this basic rhythmic idea syncopated is to accent the notes that fall on the and. I know these are real basic, but simple is badass if done aggressively. Like Forrest Gump! Again, me, Dimebag, and Tom Hanks famously did not get along. So Pantera followed up Far Beyond Driven with another killer record and an angry reaction to the media surrounding their rise to fame, The Great Southern Trendkill. And in 2000, they released their final album, Reinventing the Steel, a reference to a record we covered in episode two, British Steel by Judas Priest. It was their only major label record to not go platinum. By then, Anselmo's painkillers and booze had turned into heroin, and the band descended into chaos, dis... well banding in 2003. And shortly after a war of words in the press with Anselmo on one side and Dimebag and Vinnie Paul on the other, on December 8, 2004, as Daryl and Paul were 90 seconds into a live set at a nightclub in Columbus with their new band Damage Plan, a 25-year-old former Marine and deeply disturbed fan Nathan Gale jumped on stage and shot Dimebag Daryl to death with a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Gale killed two others and wounded three before the Columbus police arrived and shot him in the head. As the 250 fans in the club were being replaced by police officers and paramedics, Vinnie Paul, Dimebag Daryl's brother, walked out to the damage plan tour bus, crawled into his brother's bunk, and wept. And if all that isn't enough of a downer, now I have to talk about Pantera's uncomfortable proximity to the words white power. In 2016, Anselmo was videotaped giving a Nazi salute and shouting the aforementioned phrase to the crowd. He defended his actions, saying it was a joke about white wine they were serving to the performers that night. Hilarious. But I guess they were serving white wine at a Pantera show in Seoul in 2001 because he did the same thing there. And Montreal, California in 1995 when he urged the crowd to applaud if they were, quote, here tonight and white and felt proud. Anselmo eventually apologized for the 2016 event, saying it was ugly, it was uncalled for, and anybody who knows me and my true nature know that I don't believe any of that. Then stop doing it, Phil! He also said, I'm repulsed by my own actions and the self-loathing I'm going through right now is justified by the hurt I've caused. But when asked about it a few months later, he said, that apology is there. And no, you won't get another one ever again. Cool, cool. You want me to top off that Pinot Grigio for you? But the problem isn't just Anselmo. Just this year, footage came out of Dimebag Daryl refusing to sign a fan's guitar unless he passed a test to see if, and I quote, the N-word can play while wearing a shirt with a Confederate flag patch. 
Anselmo and Rex Brown have said that they regret their use of the Confederate flag on the back of the Great Southern Trend Kill and Dimebag's fucking guitar, but claimed it was a tribute to Leonard Skinner, which makes sense. It's not like there's any other way that a band of musicians could pay tribute to another band of musicians, like, I don't know, covering one of their songs. But Pantera wasn't really known for that, except when they did that exact thing with Black Sabbath for their second highest charting song in the band's history. Now, putting that flag that is widely understood to symbolize the virtues of owning other humans on your guitar and album covers in the year two fucking thousand really is the only tribute worth making. Okay, to wrap all this up, Anselmo insists that he is not a racist, and I'm sure he and Dimebag have the friends to prove it. But Pantera as a band has a history of this shit, and that's why they get called out for it. If somebody came out and said, Metallica is racist, we'd all be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Some of their best albums are black. I'm just kidding. That album sucks. My point is that it doesn't happen to Metallica because Metallica doesn't do the stupid shit Pantera did. They brought accusations of racism on themselves, and that's a real stain on their legacy. Thankfully, the metal community came out hard against Anselmo's wine power salute, and they need to, because it's a real problem in the metal community. God knows what those national socialist black metal cunts are up to, but we ought to ridicule and ostracize them out of metal until they go back to writing fanfiction sequels to The Crow on 8chan where they belong. I'm not saying we need to boycott Pantera or burn their albums, but they are one of the most important bands in the history of metal, and I don't think we should ignore their pattern of shitty, irresponsible behavior just because we love their music. So I didn't. But I want to end Groove on a good note and talk about another band in the subgenre. Pantera's contemporaries include late entry to the category Lamb of God and the utterly underrated Exhorter out of New Orleans. But my favorite Groove Metal alum was something of a late convert to the musical movement. They began as much more of a thrash band formed in 1984 by Max Cavalera and his brother Igor, whose somewhat questionable history as a lab assistant to Italian-Swiss scientists rumored to have experimented with a reanimation of human corpses hasn't had any negative effects on his ability to play the drums. After fairly limited releases of their first two albums through Cogumelo Records in their native country of Brazil, they began refining their thrash bona fides on 1998's Beneath the Remains and experimented with their sound, including elements of industrial and hardcore punk, for their 1991 release, Arise. But they departed from their thrashier roots, pun oh so very fucking much intended, and began cultivating their own brand of what would become known as groove metal, with an album that inexplicably reached 32 on the US Billboard charts and all music called one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time. And those guys don't get to pick and choose what music to listen to. They listen to all music. In 1993, the band Sepultura had refined their political critique into an explicit assault on the socio-political and racial injustices of their home country and changed heavy metal music forever with an album titled... Well, I'll let Max tell you. Chaos ain't the disorder unleashed Starting to burn, starting to leak Stop, stand on your feet, inner fear, you're worse than a me. Resistance. 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 
that is Refuse Resist off of the album Chaos AD. And for a lot of Sepultura fans, that's the end of it. The next album, Roots, gets dismissed as new metal and shortly after Max Cavalera leaves. Igor follows 10 years later in 2006, but the last album he appears on, Dante 21, is the beginning of a number of late concept albums. Dante 21 is based on The Inferno by... Well, let me check my notes here. Dante. Alex is based off of Clockwork Orange, and their most recent, Quadra, centers around the numerology of the number four. <laughs> what kind of crazy person gets obsessed with the number four and starts injecting it into their projects at each and every turn? Stay safe out there, guys. Anyway, if you haven't heard them, they are worth a spin. My brother turned me on to Late Sepultura, and I was pretty surprised by those three records in particular. Derek Green's vocals alone are worth the price of admission. Go check them out. But I want to briefly go back to Roots for a minute, the album that was produced by Ross Robinson, who is known as the godfather of new metal, an oft-derided subgenre, but I'll deride that in just a bit. Robinson produced the first two Korn albums, Three Dollar Bill Y'all by Limp Biscuit and Iowa by Slipknot. But the term new metal wasn't even coined until Spin Magazine did a live review of the band Coal Chamber in 1997. So labeling Roots, which came out two years earlier, is putting the new cart before the new horse. Or in this case, maybe it's a horse that mates with a donkey and therefore produces a newel. Because I can't keep going like this. So Roots may have influenced new metal, but I, I think the much more conspicuous influence on the album wasn't new or new at all. There's a reason the album is called Roots. Max Cavalera had to sell Roadrunner on a collaboration with the Javante, one of the indigenous tribes of Brazil and a famous Brazilian musician named Carlinos Brown. And it sounded something like this. gets shit on a lot, I think, because of Ross Robinson's production, as well as the appearances of members of Korn and the fact that Max leaned into the new metal sound with his post-Sepultura band Soulfly, which is bad. But Cavalera refers to Roots as caveman metal because of its simplicity. The title track is literally built on one note, and as Dimebag taught us, if he taught us anything, simple is badassed as well as the percussive elements adapted from the ancient tribes of Brazil. Roots reminded me, and many others, that heavy music wasn't invented in 1970s Birmingham. It's been part of human culture as long as there has been human culture. Even in the West, where Vikings invented a form of growl singing called skald, which I'll cover in that episode on metal vocals. So while Roots gets criticized for a sound that succeeded it in a few years, I think its virtue lies in a sound that predates it by thousands. And look at that. Perfect timing. Well, you beautiful mother punchers, I am getting an incoming Zoom call right now from the caveman himself. 
one of my musical heroes and hero to all heavy metal, Max Cavalera. Max, how are you, my friend? Oi, what's up, Quinn? What's up, Max? Thanks for calling in. Max Cavalera here. Yeah, I, I know, buddy. I just, I just said, what's up, Max? Did a whole intro here. So where are you now? I am in Bogota. Ah, Chile. Colombia. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm an American, so geography's not my strong suit. Not entirely sure what is. Fuck shit up! Yeah, that sounds about right. So I was just talking about Sepultura, and I wanted to ask you about musical legacy. So, like, what, in your view, did Sepultura do for heavy metal? Fuck shit up! Oh, okay. Kind of seems like you borrowed from your last answer there, but um, your last album with Sepultura, Roots, is often labeled as new metal. Is it? What what was going on in your mind when you were making that album? This is for you, my man. You wrote Roots for me? I feel like I should have listened to it more. Anyway, so you're touring now in Paraguay. Colombia! Right, right. You said that. Hey, you know what? In fact, now that I think about it, not, not to put you on the spot here, but have you listened to any and Volume for All yet? I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts. Keep up with your content. Keep going. And all great things will happen to you. It will pay off, all right, my brother? Okay, pretty solid no there. But um, this episode features Sepultura, so maybe you can you can check it out and give me some notes, huh? I have faith in you. I have faith that your stuff is going to come out killer. You're not going to listen to any of this, are you? Fuck shit up! All right, well, thanks for calling in, Max. And we'll talk to you when you get back from Colombia. Colombia! I know, I said Colombia. I just said Colombia. All right, you want to play us out, Max? Chaos AD takes on the street of front-end police, bleeding the police, raging crowd, burning guards, watching star of PLI. Ladies and gentlemen, and everything in between, friend to all, Max Cavalera, playing us out on the same song I played him in on. So... <laughs> Maybe check out the pod next time, buddy. Okay, mea culpa here. My buddy Rye from the Sabbath Bloody podcast and North by South, uh, another podcast he does where he and my my friend Clay take listener suggestions for episode topics, and then no matter you know what the topic is, they pick a Leonard Cohen song to talk about. But Rye pointed out that my indicator questions were strikingly similar to a bit by comedian Jeff Foxworthy where he asks questions, and then the punchline is, you just might be a redneck. So I'm a little embarrassed, because Jeff Foxworthy does something called the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, and it kind of implies something I have never been associated with, and that's comedy. So I'm going to change up the indicator questions that I asked in order to help you identify the subgenre of metal that you are listening to, and I no longer want you to think of them as indicators, but rather as signifiers, so as to not end up just doing a derivation of a catchphrase from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, as apparently I have been doing for two episodes now. So here are your signifier questions to determine which subgenre you are more than likely listening to at the moment. Here we go. Groove metal signifiers. Do the band members seem like they were far and away the toughest kids at each and every one of their classical piano recitals? 
Do you get the feeling no one in the band has dated or even spoken to a woman in the last five years, including those band members who are women? If you were to make a word cloud of the lyrics, would the most frequently used word be the letter R, followed by 45 A's, three G's, and an H? If you can answer those signifiers with a yes, then here's your sign that you are more than likely listening to groove metal at the moment. Woo! Dodge that bullet. <laughs> okay, we are halfway through the episode, and so far we've covered... Hold on, let me check my notes here. 14. Okay, the one. That's it. Greater than. So that's lesser than symbol. Ding. Four. And then there's a... That's not an equal sign. That looks like a sideways H with no line in the middle. See, and... One subgenre. So I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we will discuss Prague. Goth, industrial, new metal, metalcore, and one of my favorite subgenres of all, and the final entry in our series with more B news and knee news than you can shake a stick at, and albums with a 78 minute runtime that are made up of exactly four songs, all of which are titled Antidiluvian Embryology, but parts one through four. It's time to boldly go with no metal subgenres gone before. When we come back. So Imagine a not-so-distant future in which there is one worldwide government called the Company. A few have much, and the many know little. A prisoner, known only as 16, is released from a 20 years rehabilitation sentence for having a genetic predisposition to criminality. He immediately falls in with a small but dangerous revolutionary faction, quickly rising through their ranks to lead them in a great strike against their global oppressors, realizing only too late that the rebellion he leads was formed by the children of the seven heads of the company. Sixteen wonders to himself, can I kill the company, or will they take me first? And will I slay this seven-headed beast to replace it with something worse? I'm sorry, that intro was kind of convoluted and derivative and just trying a little too hard. Which is why it's the perfect lead-in for prog metal. Prague, which is metal speak for progressive, could be the most eclectic of all metal subgenres, including bands as divergent as Tool, Opeth, Dream Theater, and the quintessential prog metal band, Queensryche. This holy pain 
Like sludge, the term progressive gets used as an adjective far more often than as a noun in describing individual bands. Progressive can be as loosely defined as a band that changes their sound with every album, like reverse ACDC, CDCA, who switch genres and instruments on every record, all of which center around the importance of moderation, serial monogamy, and their perpetual struggle against the effects of low T. The Queensryche track I just played is The Mission off their 1988 release Operation Mindcrime, which went gold a year later and platinum in 1991. Operation Mindcrime is a concept album similar to the example I used in the opening, except obviously one of those is just a silly slapdash ripoff of a dime store dystopian novel with little to no thought involved in structuring any kind of actual story of depth or importance, and the other took me like 10 minutes to come up with. I'm kidding. Operation Mindcrime is actually really cool, and even if you don't like the music, the ambition and the diligence required to execute an album as complicated and intricate as Queensryche's third LP is really impressive and deserves appreciation of any artist, regardless of their personal taste. Prog metal as an independent subgenre rather than a description is a fusion of the highly energetic guitar-driven elements of heavy metal with the more experimental or conceptual elements of progressive rock. Jazz and classical are frequently cited as progressive influences as those musical styles allow for individual displays of musical virtuosity, including harmonies and rhythms with a high degree of difficulty. And speaking of high degree, those are two of the most trusted methods for enjoying prog metal, getting high or getting a degree. So, after some furious googling, apparently the phrase, here's your sign, is also a catchphrase from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. I'm going to call an audible here and just ask the questions in the most straightforward and honest way I know how. As a character called Barry the Metal Guy. So, here we go. <clears throat> Hi, it's me, Barry the Metal Guy, and here are your prog questions. Do you hear a violin? Wait, was that a cello? Did you just hear a fucking saxophone? I don't care who you are, that's prog metal right there. And it's more than likely what you are listening to right now. Whoa. The lights just went out. the fuck did all these candles come from? It smells like a bed, bath, and beyond in here. Or is it a dead bathery and beyond dark in here? It's goth! Born out of the coffin-shaped cradle of death doom in the early 90s, the gothic metal subgenre includes bands like Type O Negative, Theatris des Vampires, or as we would say in the US, Theaters des Vampires. Them Dracula's got thyself a band now. And him, which stands for His Infernal Majesty. Now, if all of this seems a bit silly at first, just wait. Here are the names of some of my favorite gothic metal bands I discovered while preparing this episode. And yes, I will read them with a bad Eastern European accent. Of drowning heaven, forsaken one with a number four, and then number one, which is what this band is to me. Number one. Nine times dead, which is nine times deader than the normal amount. Ages of night, beauty of blood, bleak shadows, blood, 
spelled B L U umlaut D D like Elmer Fudd only more dead book of sorrow charm but with an E on the end which stands for evil cold distance oh so you know my ex-wife ah, I'm kidding we have a good time here okay colder thy kiss creepy family <laughs> creepy family cryptal darkness this was the name of my ex-girlfriend in high school but she was mormon so that wasn't going anywhere devil with an ae to make it sound more like the name tag of a guy whose name dave larson dave l damnation spelled damn hyphen nation the hyphen is extra solitary dark period which is what happens when my wife doesn't properly hydrate dark n it's dark with a hy it's dark with a hyphen and then a capital n get it dark and come on that's fucking clever deep cut this band only releases singles dying rose ghost orgy grave insult <laughs> grave insult head over hell wow these fucking suck now mephisto which is what i put in your bottle mephisto saint elmo which is not a vampire he's tiny red muppet but creeps me out when i see his legs don't like his little feet sea of despair solitary road which leads to my house and finally two foot candle hey that's a big fucking candle goth is really more of an aesthetic than anything it's heavy metal plus the ethereal ominous spooky atmospherics of an abandoned transylvanian cathedral or is it abandoned not a transylvanian cathedral it's it's definitely a cathedral in transylvania that's presumably why you went in but as goofy as the aesthetic can be, goth, like I said, has its roots in Death Doom and took a lot of cues from some great bands like these guys, Paradise Lost, which I was introduced to by a listener and Twitter friend, Doomy McDoombutt. That's not his real name, obviously. I think it's Lance McDoombutt, but I call him Mr. Tibbs.
Hey, thanks everybody for letting me know that there's a comedian named Larry the Cable Guy who says, I don't care who you are, that's funny right there. Could you just wave your hands or, or wink really hard next time? Throw me a fucking bone? All right, no more comedy. I'm just gonna ask these questions as a series of simple observations. Observations that when phrased in a particular way, you may find yourself wondering as well. It's not comedy, it's just common sense. Here we go, goth observations. Do you find yourself experiencing a full range of emotions? Does that range extend from withering loneliness all the way to withering lonesomeness? Do you want to compare those emotions to the fallen petals of dead flowers? Or do you want to compare everything to the fallen petals of dead flowers, including the fallen petals of dead flowers? There you go. So what's the deal with goth? Why do they call it goth? Did the full name just take too long to say? Is gothic really that much to ask? Why are the goths in such a hurry? Who are these people? They're goths. And it's more than likely that you are listening to them right now. Let's move out of the late 16th century and into the middle of the 18th, a time of revolution, when machine usurps the primacy of man, ushering in the age of industry. That is Heresy by Nine Inch Nails, also known as Trent Reznor. Side note, can I just say thank you, Mr. Reznor, for giving your band a name other than your own? Reznor is the singer, songwriter, sole instrumentalist, and producer of Nine Inch Nails, and I, for one, deeply appreciate that he took the time to give the band a name. It's probably my biggest pet peeve when musicians just name their bands after themselves, like Dave Matthews, Van Halen, or Jethro Tull. And what's that? Fuck it, I'm leaving it in. They're not gonna Google it. Naming a band after yourself tells me that you have nothing to say about the world other than me. We're the me band, everybody. And what kind of music do we make? Me music. But I just call it music. Have an idea, have a project. If you can write lyrics, you can come up with one to three words that maybe tell us something about it. Even if it's nonsense, like Oingo Boingo or Hoobastank or Yingwei Malmsteen. What? I don't care. I never edit and I'm not about to start. Okay? You're interrupting me.
There are tons of bands that I won't listen to because some dickhead decided to name it after themselves, like Devin Townsend, or Santana, or Joe Satriani, who took real creative risk in 1995 when he titled his sixth album, Joe Satriani. Just take one of the names of your songs or albums if that fits. If Dave Matthews Band were called Crash or Ants Marching, I might listen to them. Carlos Santana named three albums Santana. Come on, Carlos. Name the band something. Half the musicians on both American continents have been in your band at one point or another. Why is it just your name? Call yourself Abraxas or Moonflower, even Black Magic Woman. It'd be a cool left turn. But I digress. Just want to say that I'm glad it's called Nine Inch Nails because I wouldn't listen to any of it if it was called The Trent Experience. Other industrial metal bands include Ministry, Rammstein, or Rammstein, and KFMDM, or Kill Motherfucking Depeche Mode, which, to my knowledge, is not the birth name of any member in the band. That's World War III by KMFDM, killer track. Dig those German weirdos. I know, it's redundant. Like all metal, industrial is centered around guitar riffs, but is augmented with electronic sound, including samples and distorted vocals. The subgenre's popularity only lasted about a decade, and as the machinery began to wind down, another musical movement took the syncopated riffage of groove metal, combined it with the electronic sampling of industrial, and the emotional maturity of a high school back row finger bang session during the midnight showing of Independence Day created something worse than even a musician naming the band after themselves. Seinfeld. I was, I was doing a Seinfeld bit, it turns out. I'm just going to read these questions because you guys are clearly not going to help me out if I start to go into some stupid stand-up comedy trope. It's the least I could expect when you're listening to your favorite podcast. Just let me know which one it is. <laughs> oh, I get no respect. Anyway, here are your industrial questions. Do you hear a drill press? Wait, was that a table saw? Did you just hear a fucking saxophone? You are more than likely listening to industrial right now. New metal is the musical equivalent of a white guy with dreadlocks coming down off his fourth Rockstar Energy drink, scat-wrapping his way into your living room via Total Request Live. With Pantera fading away in the late 90s and grunge having recently slipped into the coma known as alt-rock, bands like Limp Bizkit, Coal Chamber, and P.O.D. stepped up to fill the void with cultural hot dog water, following the movement's unequivocal leader out of Bakersfield, California, the Florence, Italy of the douchebag renaissance. Because eventually I would have to. Here's corn.
riff though. Like grunge and glam, there's not a lot left to say about new metal that you probably don't already know. Metal has engaged in a self-flagellation campaign in the years after new metal's demise that rivals the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And rightly so. The vast majority of it sucks shit, but there are notable exceptions. System of a Down and Deftones don't deserve to be lumped in with Stained or Disturbed, two bands responsible for some of the worst music to ever emerge from hard rock and heavy metal, and yes, I'm including Kiss. There are no lack of reasons why new metal sucks, but here are three. One, manufactured emotional stakes. Every new metal frontman vibrates in a perpetual state of... I'm right on the edge of breaking, and at any moment I could explode into scary nursery rhymes. Don't know what I'm talking about? Here you go. That is so hard to listen to, but don't worry. I went back in time and killed baby Jonathan Davis. So, that's the end of that. Don't regret it at all. Two, fake danger. New metal is always painting itself as somehow dangerous, reminding us that they're gonna let the bodies hit the floor if you don't return their phone calls, Jennifer. Nowhere is this phony threat more conspicuous than the psycho head tilt. The bassist walks up to the camera wearing a hockey mask or some other goofy shit and tilts his head to the side, like he's just escaped from Arkham Asylum, stumbled upon a school bus full of children stuck in a ditch, and is tapping on the window with a garden spade, thinking, I wonder what their insides will look like when I use them to decorate my foyer. They probably wouldn't say foyer, though. They'd say, that room where I walk into my house and hang up all the coats. Number three, rap rock. And this isn't for the reason I think a lot of people would assume I hate rap rock. I love rap and hip-hop. I grew up on Wu-Tang Clan and Cypress Hill. I still love them, as well as Public Enemy, MF Doom, Kendrick Lamar, et al. Good hip-hop, like good heavy metal, is really hard to do. These are some of the worst bands who can't even make good music in their own genre, and they inexplicably decided to add another really demanding musical form into the mix. New Metal frequently combines two genuinely difficult and dichotomous styles and places them in the hands of musicians who aren't proficient at either. Look at Rage Against the Machine. Tom Morello is a top-tier metal guitarist, and Zach De La Roche is an equally gifted MC. Rage Against the Machine is great, but even they struggle to maintain what they built on their first album. How the fuck does Fred Durst think he can compete with two brilliant musicians in their respective genres while being decidedly neither brilliant nor a musician? Take a listen. Quenching the thirst of the power dawn That five-sided fifth of gone Now I can show 
Does it seem like the frontman is constantly right on the edge of the stage and absolutely nothing else? Are you pretending to be freaked out because you don't want the bassist to feel like he's doing a bad job? Is the song 50% rock, 50% rap, and 100% terrible? Hickory dickory duck, new metal and it's more than likely that you are listening to it right now. Ho! Okay, two more subgenres to talk about before we get to talk about the future. Nice, I finally fixed that echo. Go, go, go. God damn it! Another much maligned heavy metal subgenre rose to popularity in the mid-aughts. Metalcore is the combination of extreme metal subgenres like death or thrash and hardcore punk. Oi, you already covered that, mate. It's called grindcore. No, metalcore was influenced by grindcore, but there's a lot more melody to it, especially in the choruses. They combine a lot of metal vocals with clean singing, and that's why it's much more popular genre than grindcore. Right, I'm gonna go watch telly. Football's on. Ooh, I love football. I'm a big Seahawks fan. Hope you die in a fire, mate. What's that? Metalcore includes bands like As I Lay Dying, Shadows Fall, Bullet For My Valentine, and Killswitch Engage. Heartache, where you can hear the combination of metal vocals and clean singing and a little breakdown to get the kids off their smartphones and into a circle of people running really fast to try to hurt themselves or one another. Like we used to back when America had values. Metalcore is super clean, with lots of palm muting and double bass. A lot, a lot of the more popular bands suck, but I listened to Korn when I was a teenager, so why do you care what I think? There is, however, still good in metalcore. The Emperor hasn't driven it from them fully. The recently defunct Every Time I Die is a post-hardcore slash metalcore band with a terrible name, but one of the best trilogies of albums in modern metal. From Parts Unknown, Low Teens, and their final record released in 2021, Radical. Here are some lyrics by the lead singer Keith Buckley from a song called Planet Shit, a not-so-subtle ode to a certain former president who shall remain shameless. Honesty's not a virtue, 
when you're a lying piece of shit. You're a soulless hypocrite. What kind of heaven awaits someone so cruel and afraid? Love is not a virtue when you're a heartless piece of shit. You're a soulless hypocrite. Monsters, we stand no chance without your heads. You fucking monsters, we stand no chance without your heads. I want heads. What kind of death can you buy that's any different than mine? Check it out. Planet shit. On the guillotine! Better yet, the guillotine! Oh yeah, the guillotine! Honesty's not a virtue when you're a lying piece of shit! You're a soulless hypocrite! What kind of heaven awaits someone so cruel and vain? Love is not a virtue when you're a heartless piece of shit! You're a soulless hypocrite! Monsters, we stand no chance! Without your hands, you fucking monsters We stand no chance Without your hands, I want hands What kind of death can you buy? That's any different than mine Great fucking band, gonna miss those guys Here are your metalcore indicators You can't see it, but I'm, I'm holding up some props <laughs> And there... <laughs> They're pretty good. And finally, we have arrived at the conclusion of our series on subgenres. I realize somewhere out there, a guy whose best friends know him only as Da Bud just pressed pause six hours into a Deep Space Nine marathon and made a half-litted announcement to his miniature pot-bellied pig named James K. Pork, offering, Did forgot stoner metal, James K. Well, no, Da Bud. I have forgotten neither stoner metal nor about Dre. I want to save that particularly poorly named subgenre for the next episode because I think it demonstrates something interesting about the future. <sighs> okay, of heavy metal. Edel, Edel. Tony H. Iomi. I want you to listen to me, Echo. I have a certain set of skills, and I promise you, I will find you. And when I find you, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to use that episode and our discussion of metal's forward trajectory to update the subgenre of doom and talk a little bit about the heaviness that's been coming out of the desert. But let's not get ahead of ourselves as we round out the history of subgenres with a most appropriately titled branch on the evolutionary tree of all things heavy, post-metal.
That is Chevron, a collaboration between solo artist Julie Christmas, who we can safely assume from the title of her one and only solo record, 2010's The Bad Wife, is not unlike her Yuletide namesake in that she only comes once a year. Oh my god, my apologies to the Christmas family, my own family, and all of your families out there as well. Also, Christmas itself. Let me just jump back into the middle of this now completely irrelevant sentence here. And one of my favorite post-metal bands, Cult of Luna, off their 2016 masterpiece on the existential nature of space travel, Mariner. Post-metal is so named for its exploration of sounds beyond, outside, or after the genre of metal. They've largely done away with a strict verse-chorus structure, focusing instead on repetition of musical themes and the high contrast between ambience, atmosphere, and drone, and more traditional metal crescendos, as you heard in Chevron. The subgenre was pioneered in the 90s by bands like... Uh, neurosis. Who recently suffered a fatal blow upon their lead singer and perhaps my favorite metal vocalist of all time, Scott Kelly, admitting to his years-long side project of abusing and terrorizing his wife and children. Another pillar of the post-metal movement was a terrific band who combined a great musical foresight with a terrible socio-political one, named Isis. Side note, when they were first starting in the 70s, Isis was originally named Jonestown, before changing the name in the 80s to Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, only to rechristen themselves Columbine in the early 90s and finally arriving at Isis in the year 2000, which they retained until their dissolution in 2010. There was apparently talk of a reunion and yet another name, Omicron Monkeypox, which seems creepily prescient, but I'm no musician. Some really great bands come out of the post-subgenre, including the instrumental quartet from Chicago, Pelican, and what is perhaps my favorite band making heavy metal right now, The Ocean. There's a post-metal band called Russian Circles. They're an instrumental band, and I saw them open for the ocean. Now, if they were doing this podcast, they wouldn't fall into any stand-up comedy cliches because in Soviet Russia, post-metal indicates you. Here are your post-indicators. Does it seem like only one member of the band is playing an instrument for the last 14 minutes, but you can't tell which one? When the entire band does start playing their instruments, does it sound like they're each playing three? Does the beginning of the song sound like be nu ni nu, but then 32 minutes later at the end, it's all be 
It is more than likely that you are listening to Post Metal right now. We did it! We did it! We made it through almost all the major metal subgenres, and on the next episode, we'll talk about why I think stoner, desert, and doom metal bands are leading us into the future. Oocher, ooch. You know, I've kind of gotten used to it. So, I have a series of deep and complicated doubts that you're wondering, who are these ghosts of heavy metal future? You want to know? Fuck around and find out. On the next, and volume for all. Bill Engvall. Bill Engvall. Bill Engvall.